Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. guest today is the chief television critic for the New York Times. He often focuses on the intersection of television, politics, and culture. He's the author of the new book, Audience of One, Donald Trump, Television, and the Fracturing of America. James Poniewozik, welcome to Words Matter. Thanks so much for having me. So every week, one of the questions we try to answer is, how did we get here? And I have to say, your book offers some of the most insightful, most coherent, and most logical answers to that question. And in the process, it explains uh, what's happening in real time and why. And you start out by saying that it's really two parallel stories going on here. One is about television, and the other is about Donald Trump. And they were both really born at the same time. So let's start with television. How did television go from a media monolith, as you describe it, to the media bubbles we have today, or more precisely, from the great homogenizer of the 20th century to the great fragmenter of the 21st? So essentially, back in the the days of the 20th century, you know, in the early 80s, when Donald Trump was establishing himself first as a, a media omnipresence in the Reagan years, television was it was mass media. And the key word there is mass. And that is the the essential difference between then and now. Back then, there were three major TV networks, commercial TV networks, CBS, NBC, ABC. And this meant that every program that was on the air had to be aimed at an audience of tens of millions of people. There was the sensibility of of TV as kind of a big tent where you needed to offer a little something for everyone. Everything on the air had to speak to everyone. There was a concept in TV programming at the time of what was called the least objectionable program. And that meant that when you put something on the air, it needed to be inoffensive enough that it was not going to give people a reason to change the channel, right? Because that was that was the key to the business at that point, making sure that people stayed tuned to your network through the night so that the TV would still be set to that channel when they turned it on again in the morning. And this is obviously, you know, a difference in business and the amount of entertainment that's available to us. But it also means a a different kind of programming and a different tone of programming, you know, more homogeneous, more broadly pleasing, often more boring. And what has changed from then till now, as people know, although I think people are not necessarily aware of, of its implications, is that you had cable quickly emerge. CNN comes out. MTV comes out. You have channels that are aimed at specific interest groups and demographics. And what that means is that you're moving away from the least objectionable programming to putting things on the air that aren't necessarily for everyone, that are, that are super targeted at individual groups. And this is exacerbated by the rise of digital cable and premium pay cable. And, of course, the Internet and social media that divides the audience into smaller and smaller niches, smaller and smaller interest groups. And you have things and you have 
programming and personalities whose goal is not to appeal to everybody, but maybe to alienate a large group in the interest of very much serving the interests of particular groups. And that changes everything on television. It means, you know, a lot more varied and risk-taking entertainment programming. And it also means the rise of much more polarized and sort of sharp-elbowed political and civic discussion in the media. That makes sense. So let's talk about Donald Trump then. You describe the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II as a seminal moment for a seven-year-old Donald Trump. How did that event play out in the Trump household? Uh, It's one of the few memories of his childhood that he shares in The Art of the Deal, uh, his autobiography, memoir, deal, book, whatever you call it, uh, ghostwritten by Tony Schwartz. And he recalls in, I believe it was 1953, watching his mother, who was an emigre from Scotland, being captivated by the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, the the pageantry and the spectacle of it. And this was a time when it was a brand new phenomenon that you could sit in a living room in Queens, New York, and watch an event that was transpiring, you know, an ocean away. And obviously, this changes a lot of things in the culture. What Trump writes in The Art of the Deal was that his, his mother was, was captivated by the spectacle and grandeur of it, and that this sort of inspired him to be interested in spectacle and showmanship and fascination with the sort of, sort of entertainment and presenting people grand images. It's also an example of a kind of worldview that children of his generation experienced that no other generation of humans had 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 lived through before, which is the idea that there is this other virtual space in public life. Suddenly, there's not just the place that you live. There's this box inside your house, and it brings the world to you. And it means that thousands of people, millions of people, can occupy Westminster Abbey at the same time, watching the coronation of the Queen. And if you can become a presence in that virtual space, you can be everywhere and speak to everyone. And that seemed to be a a, a very seminal event in the life of Donald Trump, who later went into his father's real estate business, but said, I want to bring show business into real estate. Right. And another pivotal Trump moment you talk about in the book is his first national television interview. And that was in 1980 with Tom Brokaw on The Today Show. So describe that scene for us as the red light went on and Donald Trump entered America's living room. It's interesting. It's interesting, number one, because he was doing this interview on the Today Show before he really had done anything to be famous about. He was planning to build Trump Tower and had gotten a lot of press in the New York tabloids, uh, you know, as sort of a flamboyant figure and uh, was kind of building his media persona on the strength of that. And the Donald Trump you see in that interview is, on the one hand, in the broad strokes, it's it's the same sort of character we've seen play out on our TV screens since then. You know, this this sort of cocky, brash, braggadocious, you know, rich guy talking about his big plans and his big ambitions. But 
his his tone is also much more sort of moderate and smooth and assuring than the Donald Trump we would later see tell people you're fired on The Apprentice or see shooting his mouth off in front of cameras now as president of the United States. And part of that, I'm sure, has to do with the evolution of, of Donald Trump and the change in his, his temperament as uh, he got older. But it is also very much the change in the media, and it's the voice of the media of that time, where you did have to kind of sand down your edges, and you had to present yourself as a reassuring figure to a broad group, rather than be, you know, the sort of pugnacious, in-your-face fighter that he would establish as his brand eventually. Yeah, I want to talk about Trump's image and how it evolved. Uh, A lot of people describe Trump as having a career as a businessman, but you put it differently. And here's what you write. TV wasn't an adjunct to Trump's career. It was his career. Media celebrity wasn't a byproduct of his success. It was the basis of his success. TV had been central to presidential politics for more than half a century. Reagan had to become governor of California first. Donald Trump leapfrogged that step. Dwight Eisenhower campaigned on TV, but he became president by winning the war in the European theater. Donald Trump became president by winning the 9 p.m. time slot on NBC. Now, given that it took him 58 years to get his own show, explain Trump's career trajectory in creating his television character. I think Trump's seminal intuition was that in a culture that was going to be ruled by this virtual space of television that he had watched Queen Elizabeth's coronation on as a little boy, appearance mattered above all. It was more important to be sort of the popular culture picture of wealth and success than it was necessarily to be the biggest business success because the appearance was something that you could leverage and you could license. You could you could turn that into a brand. You could make your renown into something that gets attention to your endeavors and makes your name on a building more valuable because it's been publicized in the media. So he cultivated, first of all, before anything, celebrity, and then found ways to leverage that celebrity into other successes, whether it was real estate, whether it was licensing his name into all the ventures he went into, Trump Airlines, uh, you know, buying a USFL team, Trump Ice, Trump Wine, etc. And of course, ultimately, TV stardom, which he then found a way to transition into political stardom. But going back to the issue of everyone's trying to figure how we got from here to there, how did Donald Trump happen? I think that one mistake that people make is to look at him as, you know, a, a, a businessman and then politician to whom the entertainment career was sort of an interesting sidelight. The celebrity always came first with him by sort of becoming the, the, the mental cartoon in people's minds through his brand building in the 1980s of, you know, this is what richness looks like. This is what wealth looks, looks like. It allowed himself to occupy that mental real estate in the heads of Americans, you know, all of whom encountered him on TV, even if they never set foot in one of his buildings. Let's talk about television heroes. How did television portray and audiences view heroes for the first 50 years before Tony Soprano? So back in the early days of television, one effect of this kind of mass media, something for everything, least objectionable program 
theory of television was that the morality and the sort of worldview of television had to be very conventional. And it had to be, you know, you assumed that families were watching things together and that people didn't want to watch things that sort of upset or or challenged their kind of view of right and wrong. You classically had the Westerns of the 50s and 60s, the good guys in the white hats, the bad guys in the black hats. There might be bad people on television. You were assured that the good guys would win out in the end. You might watch somebody like, say, J.R. Ewing on Dallas, but the sense was that this was a villain who, you know, you ultimately knew was opposed to good guys who you realized were better than them. This was kind of standard practice in television for, for decades. And that is something that also starts to change as you get a more fragmented TV environment that, that cable ushers in, right? Once you're programming for a channel like HBO, which isn't selling ads based on drawing in 30 million viewers, but is selling subscriptions to an audience that wants to find things on your channel that they can't find anywhere else, suddenly you can take these, these sorts of risks and you can put things on the air like The Sopranos. But before that, uh, you really had to offer the most broadly palatable message to the broadest section of America. And that was, you know, good guys and bad guys and the good guys win. Right. You describe Archie Bunker in the book, a racist, misogynistic, homophobic bigot from Queens as television's first anti-hero, which is a little ironic since that description can also be applied to President Trump. But talk about Archie Bunker and how the television anti-hero evolved into Tony Soprano. So, uh, yeah, All in the Family, when Norman Lear originated that on CBS, was really one of the biggest risks that had been taken in television to that point, which is to center a show around a loudmouth racist from Queens who would be blustering and ignorant and prejudiced, but in an amusing way, in a way that sort of you know, made fun of his ignorance, but also allowed you to see the way that his family might love him and people would be entertained by him. Uh, you know, CBS wasn't sure that that show was going to work. In fact, it ended up being the number one program on TV for, for five years running. And, and part of the reason that it was able to do that was that it gave you multiple angles from which to see Archie. People enjoyed the show who, you know, thought that Archie's views were repugnant, but it was really funny and they loved to see him get his comeuppance week after week. But people also watched the show who really, you know, deep down agreed with Archie, agreed with him about a lot of things and liked the fact that he said these things and that he was this funny guy played by a great actor, Carol O'Connor, and they identified with him, you know, to them. Archie Bunker was was the the hero of the show. And that, in many ways, was the first example of this complicated television antihero that you see later in figures like Tony Soprano or, or, or Walter Wright, when many of those classic cable drama heroes, uh, where an audience can take him many sorts of different ways, not necessarily the way that it was intended by his creator. And, and obviously, that provides a model for all sorts of public behavior going right up to the 2016 election and after that, where Steve Bannon actually lovingly characterized Donald Trump as Archie Bunker. That's right. Okay, so since one of your specialties is the intersection of television, culture, and politics, let's go back to politics for just a minute. Yeah. And you wrote something that really jumped out in the book 
You said five days after the attacks, Vice President Dick Cheney told Tim Russert on Meet the Press that we could no longer afford scruples. Beyond a conventional military response, he said, we also have to work, though, sort of the dark side, if you will, he said. If you're going to deal only with the sort of officially approved certified good guys, you're not going to find out what the bad guys are doing. You need to be able to penetrate these organizations. You need to have on the payroll some very unsavory characters. So how does the dark side, as described and advocated for by Dick Cheney after 9-11, play into the role of the 21st century television antihero? You know, trends and themes in popular culture often take off because they resonate with events and moods in the real world that make them take and take on a special significance or appeal to people. The Sopranos debuted just a couple of years before 9-11. And after 9-11, you start to see this rise in the popular culture of the, the sort of popularized antihero whose story is based on the premise that it is an ugly, tough world, and sometimes it takes an ugly, tough guy to get things done. One of the very earliest examples of this post 9-11 was the show 24, which was actually scheduled to premiere on Fox before 9-11. And many people thought at the time, because it was a drama about terrorism, that it would have to be taken off the air. It would be too real for people. Just the opposite. It was this massive success. And it was partly on the strength of the performance of its star, Kiefer Sutherland, playing Jack Bauer, who was this rough-edged, noble, but also very, very dark very, very hard-nosed counterterrorism agent who would break rules, break laws, very, very often torture people to get information and get results. And, you know, the notion behind this was that there's always a ticking time bomb scenario. There's always some disaster going on that the premise it's asking you to accept is that it's a dangerous world. Everything has changed. And, you know, you have to question whether it is time in this ugly world to give up some of your scruples and go with what works. And this became a theme either directly or sort of uh, subtextually in a lot of the programming of the time, down to reality shows, which in many ways popularized some of these themes of the, of the antihero in characters like, you know, say Simon Cowell on American Idol, whose calling card was, yes, He's not nice. He's a mean guy. He's rude. But he's also a truth teller. And he tells terrible singers that they can't sing because, you know what, this is the real world. And sometimes that's how you got to be. You made the perfect transition for me. That's where I wanted to go next, actually. So uh, you say that television is really two things, an art form that spins stories and an attention machine that transmits real world images from one place to another. So talking about reality TV, everything from MTV's The Real World to The Apprentice, how did the reality show and reality TV change the television landscape from 92 to about 2004? So there are a few things that reality TV does for television. Number one, sort of in the same way that a show like The Sopranos on HBO was a success by offering people things that they couldn't traditionally see on television before. Uh, reality shows sort of base their appeal on shockingness and transgressiveness and being a kind of programming that you weren't offered in the past. They also traded on the idea 
of authenticity. You know, if you go back to the real world, one of the sort of progenitors of this genre on MTV in the early 90s, its uh, slogan was, you know, here's what happens when people stop being polite and start being real. You know, if you break that down, what does that really mean? On the one hand, it's saying, yeah, okay, here's an authentic slice of life. This is a show that's going to be more real and honest about human behavior than the scripted programs that you've been watching on TV for a long time. But it's also kind of saying that these people on this show are going to be more real than people in your own life because people that you encounter in real life are sort of, they're hamstrung by social mores and politeness and, you know, all the rules that say you can't say this or that thing, even if you're saying it. And this was a a, a big repeated calling card of reality TV that basically, you know, we're showing you a social experiment. We're showing you what human nature is really going to be like if you put people in extremists, you know, if you throw them in a house together or if you strand them on an island and make them compete against each other for survival. And this is going to show you the true aspect, the honest aspect of human nature, which we promise will be entertaining, but isn't necessarily always pretty. And it's going to give you something realer than you've seen on TV before. All right. So you describe Donald Trump as perfectly suited for reality TV. And this is what you say. Donald Trump had essentially been building a reality TV set for decades before reality TV existed. His life's work was creating Umberto Eco's daydream simulation of business, something that like Disney's mechanical crocodiles, more closely match the popular fantasy of success than the bloodless, boring machinations of actual business did. He had been playing himself as a character for years. He embodied a lifestyle that was enviable yet accessible. His life looked like the last five seconds of a commercial for scratch-off lottery tickets. Now, Trump critics like to say that Trump has failed at everything in his life— But was Donald Trump a successful television character? Um, Absolutely. And he was a successful character even at the times when he was an unsuccessful businessman. He was very successful at promulgating the image of him through every available media channel as a successful businessman, which means, you know, associating yourself with the image of being like the guy from the Monopoly box. What do people think when you you have them close their eyes and imagine what it's like to be rich? I would have a, a three-story apartment with gold and crystal everywhere and <laughs> I'd be married to a supermodel and, you know, have it dripping with marble. All these sort of over-the-top signifiers and images. That Umberto Eco reference from the book that you mentioned a, mo- a moment ago, Umberto Umberto Eco was a a literary theorist who wrote a great essay in the 1970s called Travels in Hyperreality, where what he did was he traveled across America visiting reproductions of various things, a copy of Lyndon Johnson's Oval Office, wax museums, that sort of thing. And he also visited Disneyland, and he made the comment that when you go on a Disney River cruise and you see the robot crocodiles that they have in the water, they're so impressive because what they do is, you know, at their program time, they jump out of the water and open their jaws and roar and scare you. And that's amazing. And it's so satisfying because it's much better than 
what an actual crocodile or an actual alligator is likely to do if you go on a real tour in nature. They might be sleeping. They might be submerged you know, two-thirds underwater. And so it's the, the fake version that seems more real than the real thing because it comports with your fantasy image of what the real thing is like. Well, number one, that's what Donald Trump was for business. Whether he was you know, flying high or whether he was going bankrupt, he was the flashy images and, and symbols of what you expect from business. And that's what reality TV needs. You know, that's what makes him perfect for reality TV. Uh, the show Survivor, big hit on CBS. That's not actual survival on a, a, a desert island. It is a simulation of survival on desert island with all the stuff, coconuts, machetes, palm trees, etc., that you have as your cartoon image in your mind. So when the producer of Survivor, Mark Burnett, decides, oh, I want to produce a version of Survivor, but in the Manhattan business world. Uh, he needs to cast somebody to host it. Well, Donald Trump is perfect for that because you don't need an actual successful businessman to do that. What you need is the guy who people see and immediately think, that's my picture of business success. And that was Donald Trump. That was the whole point of him. And that's what I mean when I say that he was reality TV before reality TV ever existed. Right. You describe him and his character in the book this way. On The Apprentice, Trump isn't the game. He's the game board, the premise. His success, his wealth, his celebrity are all presented as a given, manifest in all those weeping chandeliers in his triplex. And as a viewer, you don't question the extent of his business holdings because they're what gives the game the idea that contestants are competing for a prize of value. If The Apprentice is survivor for the business world, then Trump is the island. So that's how it made Trump a different kind of reality star, I guess. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, one thing that Donald Trump has been very fortunate slash skilled at through his entire career is having investors and partners who were as invested in building up his image uh, as he was. And uh, the, the Apprentice made this great alliance with him. The Apprentice needed to seem like a big, authentic, legitimate business show. And therefore, it was very important for it to present him as a big, authentic, legitimate businessman. And that extended everything from building a, 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 a boardroom set where he would meet with his advisors and fire contestants on the show uh, that was based on the corporate boardroom from the movie Network that they built on on a floor of Trump Tower because the actual Trump organization offices were too dingy and unimpressive, to editing the often chaotic and irrational decisions that he would make on the show so that in retrospect, when they re-edited the events in the episode, they would make sense. It came down to things like the way they framed him and presented him, the way they would often shoot him coming down the escalators of his properties, his casinos and hotels in these sort of power positions. So, you know, the visual image is Donald Trump is the center of the world. Everybody admires him. Everybody literally looks up to him. He's decisive. He's commanding. He's charming. He's admired and envied. And in order to inflate itself, in order to make The Apprentice look like a fantastic show, it needed to devote all of the highly polished resources of a network television production into building up Donald Trump as the ultimate prize. 
Right. And one of the really interesting points you make in your book is about the relationship between the reality TV viewer and the reality of the shows themselves. Do those viewers believe that what they're watching is real? They absolutely don't. In in general, honestly, I think that reality TV fans, which I'm a fan of many reality shows, by the way, I still watch uh, every episode of Survivor. Um, I think they often get really. Uh, yeah, I, I often think reality TV fans get get a hard knock. You know, they're they're characterized as sort of these gullible fools who think that everything they're watching is unadulterated reality. And, and in fact, I think you know that may be true of some people. But in fact, I think that just from experience. Nobody believes the adage that not everything is real in reality TV more than reality TV fans in that they're looking for how is editing being used to misdirect me about who might be voted off this episode of Survivor? How are people perhaps acting out for the cameras? Uh, One thing that sort of exempted Donald Trump from this examination on The Apprentice, as I say, was that you weren't really looking for artifice on his part, because he was sort of the premise of the game. You're looking more at, oh, you know, is Omarosa just trying to stir up trouble or is she actually angry in this situation? Uh, That sort of thing. But I do think that, you know, actually one thing that is the appeal of reality TV to fans is this appeal to the viewer's savviness, this either sophisticated or, you know, bordering on cynical notion that, Everything is a kind of performance and things are manipulated and you can see through that and you are smart enough to get this and still be entertained by it. All right. Let's talk about Trump and Fox News for a minute. How did Fox News change with the election of Barack Obama in 2008? That was one of many times that people thought, oh, there's this big political change and how is Fox News ever going to survive this, right? Once once uh, uh, George W. Bush leaves office and in fact, Barack Obama ends up being one of the greatest gifts that ever happened to it because in this sort of conservative media sphere created by Roger Ailes, former media guru to Richard Nixon, uh, that this, that's kind of fueled on its viewers' sense of grievance and assault by the larger outside culture. There's nothing more beneficial than a good enemy, which was exactly what Barack Obama provided them. Number one, it's it's a Democratic president. Number two, there was just a lot of just blatantly xenophobic slash racist culture warring going on against him, against this notion that here's this new president, Barack Hussein Obama, and he's not a regular president, and there's something wrong with this, and something's gone crazy in the world. And and, and so there's this, this tone and tenor in the Fox of the time where you get the rise of hosts like Glenn Beck, who sort of created this daily theater of paranoia in which America was two steps away from ruin. And, you know, it, it, was, it was half half cable news talk show, half episode of National Treasure, you know, where, right. where he would go on the air one day and talk about how the image of the fascies on the, the Liberty Dime indicated this history of fascism in the American government. Uh, so, so this sort of sense of paranoia and being besieged became kind of a big part of the political entertainment complex of Fox News. And and it really fueled that in, in those years at the same time that, of course, that, that Donald Trump was a regular 
personality in reality TV on NBC and, and The Apprentice. Right. Fear sells. Um, here's what you say about uh, yeah, Trump. Yeah, fear sells, fights, sell, you know, conflict sells. Right. Here's yeah. what you say about Trump on that subject. What Fox took to as a calculated strategy, the appeal to ugly, atavistic emotion, Trump took to by instinct which is why he was not simply a cable news guest, but a voracious consumer. He pushed the drug and he got high on it. Elaborate on that important point, if you would. Yeah, he was not somebody with political ambitions who just went into the media as coached by his handlers uh, and, you know, sort of did what he was coached to do. He was somebody who was instinctually a a creature of television and obsessively as we now well see today during his presidency, a consumer of and and influenced by TV news. Now, the question is, how does somebody who is a game show host on NBC port himself over into this world of political commentary? Well, the gateway for him uh, in many ways was Fox News and in particular Fox and Friends, the morning show. Fox and Friends is their 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 daytime morning show that was once described by one of Fox's executives as an entertainment show that does some news. Well, that was the 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 perfect environment to bring on as a guest somebody like Donald Trump, who was an entertainer who did some dabbling in news stories. Uh, And he started to be brought on during the years of The Celebrity Apprentice to come on to Fox and Friends the morning after Celebrity Apprentice episodes. And he'd talk a little bit about, you know, why he fired Dennis Rodman and then talk about the Obama administration's policy in Libya. Uh, And, you know, the, the audience ate it up in part because he was very much like the Fox audience. He was a consumer of and enjoyer of this sort of theater of paranoia and conflict and enemies. And to the base viewers of Fox, this sounded much more authentic coming from him than it often did from the John McCain's and Mitt Romney's of the world, you know, the the Republican politicians who would sort of try to throw a little bit of red meat to the Fox base enough to, to, to keep them along, but in a way that it didn't necessarily feel authentic. Right. And with Trump, particularly because this was around the time that he embraces the the birther fantasy, among other things, you know, besides being a false racist conspiracy theory, it is also a way of signaling to that base, I'm totally one of you. I don't just, you know, throw the rhetoric and catch phrases. And, you know, I believe even this crazy stuff. I am heart and soul with you. And it made a, a real connection. Yeah, a pretty loud dog whistle. Yeah. And speaking of Fox and Friends and and your point about that, I actually really enjoyed your piece comparing Fox and Friends to children's programming and uh, one audience member in particular to how children receive characters on the television show that talk directly at them through the the fourth wall. I thought that was a, a great comparison. And we don't have time to get to it here, but I would encourage listeners to read it. Journalists spend a lot of time today analyzing why Donald Trump does the things that he does. And your book offers one of the most insightful explanations of why he picks the fights that he picks. You say to ask why Trump would pursue an unnecessary fight is to forget that in reality TV, every fight is necessary. Fighting is the end, not the means. So, too, in Trump's politics, when you lose though you never admit losing, your bloodied team cleaves closer to you, aggrieved and craving revenge. 
So is there any chance that Donald Trump stops fighting? <laughs> when when they carry him out of the Oval Office and, you know, maybe not after that. No, it's so much in the core of his being and the core of his brand. It's the entire point of him. and And that is why... Obviously, I'm biased in this aspect as a TV critic of seeing things through the lens of TV. But I I feel like so many of the pundits who were confounded by Trump's presidential campaign in 2016 or who thought that, well, surely the responsibilities of office will make him more presidential once he's elected and confronted with the gravity of, of, of office, I think would have understood things better if they just watched a little more TV. Because if you watched reality TV, you wouldn't say something like, why is Donald Trump picking all these pointless fights when he, you know, goes after John McCain, impugning him as a war hero or randomly attacking minor Republican candidates at at a debate? You know, people would wring their hands and say, you know, why in the world would Donald Trump want this pointless fight? Well, the point of the fight is to show that you're a fighter. It's sort of a, a meta argument which basically says, this guy that I'm attacking, he can't even defend himself because he's too soft and constricted by the rules about what you're supposed to say as a nice person. Well, I'm not. You know, I'm the street fighter who's going to fight for you. And I will say, you know, I'm sure you've, you've heard this, even at Donald Trump's worst times as president, the things that his strongest fans will say about him over and over again, the first thing is, well, at least he's a fighter. He fights for us. Fight, fight, fight is that message that's carried across over and over again. And if he were to stop fighting, he would stop being the character Donald Trump that they voted for. Really, it's, you know, it's it's kind of an example of how in an entertainment arena, you know, sort of Fox News spectacle style political culture, the fight isn't a means to an end. It is the end. You know, it's it's what's what he's giving his most ardent fans that they they really like. And I think he would know sooner stop doing that than stop breathing. <laughs> I think that's probably right. An- another thing you talk about in a way that I think really explains what's going on is our divided electorate. And I'm, I want to snapshot what you write here. You could argue that the division in American politics isn't so much between parties or even ideologies, but between narratives. One sees diverse groups as adding to the country's strength and talent. Another sees them as competitors for limited resources. One sees cultural pluralism as enriching the country, another as diluting it. Is that why you think Trump's appeal transcends traditional geographic or even demographic divisions? Yeah. And ideological divisions. You know, I think that is one reason why politics is a lot less ideological these days than sort of political observers have been trained to see it. And it's much more about tribal affiliation. And it is part of a shift in culture that cuts across so many things, you know, the the same way that in our sort of, you know, demographic bubbles of entertainment, you have people watching different sort of shows and stories that have different messages that another part of the country doesn't see at all. You know, you have on the one hand, something like 
Lost or, or Hamilton or Friday Night Lights, which sort of talks about the unity of the community and people of different types pulling together, you know, allows everybody to have greater possibilities and a greater future. And on the other hand, you have something like The Walking Dead, which is, you know, sort of a drama of the siege mentality. And you need to pull together with your tight little group against the mob of others who are coming to destroy you. And you have to hold tight and, you know, stay with your own. You know, that maps in a very direct way way onto politics and how you could describe the political divides in the country today that you know it's it's you know sort of about communalism versus isolationism and i think that when when you talk about culture warring in politics it means a lot of different things but i think part of it is tapping directly into these anxieties that are expressed in our popular culture in those ways and in many ways our, our politics is it's a continual fight over and over again on what our national story is, how to interpret it, and who has the right to be considered a lead character in it. All right. So let's end on a positive note here. <laughs> okay, you, well, you write we'll give it book, a try. <laughs> we'll try it. You write in the book that there's no reason that American life has to forever run at the speed of Trump, that the only way to power is through acrimony and the culture war of all against all. The television culture that Donald Trump grew up with, thrived in, and embodies is not the only kind of television. His story is not the only kind of story it can tell. So do you think the audience, the voters, will eventually tire of that kind of television? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, a story over and over again in television is that sometimes the phenomenon takes off a really shocking character or program catches the zeitgeist and becomes really popular and then it gets overexposed and people burn out on it and tire of it you know i think you definitely see some reaction along those lines to to donald trump a sense that people just want a rest from the show from anxiously looking at their phones every morning <laughs> sort of wanting a change of pace you know i think that the factors in the media and the polarization of culture and so on that sort of made the election of Trump possible, those aren't going away, whatever happens in any individual election. But that doesn't mean that the only kind of leaders we're ever going to elect are sort of angry street fighters uh, uh, appealing to the the angriest and, and pettiest resentments among people. You can use this same sort of forum to inspire and to, you know, present uplifting messages and to suggest the idea that maybe by seeing each other as members of a community that can, you know, improve things for everyone, rather than competitors, we can actually do better. You know, I think the important thing is simply to remember that, you know, that is kind of the field of combat. You know, we do live in a media society. Attention matters. The ability to, you know, uh, inspire or sell a message, a certain amount of showmanship matters. Uh, and you need to compete on those grounds in order to, to break through. Well, I think that's as positive a note as we can end on. Right. The book is called Audience of One, Donald Trump, Television and the Fracturing of America. It is a must read for anyone trying to understand Donald Trump and how we got to this moment in American history. James Ponywozik, thank you for joining us on Words Matter. Thanks so much. It was a great talk. 
Katie, that was a really fascinating interview. You can't forget how important television is to Donald Trump. This is a guy who resuscitated his career as sort of a developer in New York who was all bluster, but you know, not taking that seriously, and reemerged as a television star of a reality show. You can't overestimate how important that is to understanding him. Thanks, Joe. Uh, and to our listeners, we wanted to do an impeachment update, but with all the news that happened last week, we couldn't do it justice in the time we have left. So stay tuned tomorrow when we will drop a special impeachment update episode. Yeah, we'll talk about the Constitution, and then we'll very quickly go to the politics, the politics, and some more politics, because there was a lot of politics being played last week. But we now, looking forward, know what the next phase is going to look like. And we're going to hear on live television. And big stars are going to be made of people like Ambassador Bill Taylor, Colonel Vindman, Fiona Hill. They're going to lay out in a very uh, methodical way what happened, who was involved, and what presidential powers were abused. So buckle up. It's game time. To be continued. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 